But turn with me in the Word of God to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. And whether you're here or whether you're with us on the internet, would you stand up right where you're at? Would you stand up right where you are as we read the holy, infallible, inspired and an errant word of the living God. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision He's under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by the law. You've fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Faith working through love. Be seated. seen uh, recently in the commercials an advertisement for a, a Bible story app. If you haven't seen it, just listen to it. If you have, you kind of know what I'm talking about because what it does is has an image and the sound of a snap, crackle, and pop of a fireplace. And a very warm and soothing and pastoral voice begins to speak about Bedtime stories from the Bible. I think about bedtime uh, stories from the Bible because uh, as we turn to our text here this morning, we see that when the Apostle Paul wanted to punctuate his point about justification by faith alone and its implications, he reached for a Bible story. As, as we think about that story, which leads into our text, uh, we're going to see it's not so warm. In fact, it's a, it's a very theological telling of the Bible story, which probably wouldn't put you to sleep. It would probably cause you to lean forward on your bed and think. The story I'm thinking about, the Apostle Paul reaches for, which is going to lead into a big, massive, glorious term, liberty, is the story of Abraham's two sons. And I say the story of Abraham's two sons. I should probably say Abraham's... Uh, Two primary sons, because as you know, it's read on in Genesis 25, after Sarah died, he buried Keturah and had six sons with her. But I say two primary sons, because the Genesis narrative is dominated by the story of Abraham's two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And the thing about the story of Abraham's two sons is that they have radically different births. You see, on the one hand, you have the story of Ishmael's birth. And the story of Ishmael's birth can be summarized quite simply as all about human plans and human means. Human plans and human means. At age uh, 75, the Lord came to Abraham and Herod, as we just noticed last week in thinking about that Genesis narrative and other connection. He came to him and said, I, I, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. You're going to have a family that will fill the whole earth, and the whole earth will be blessed in and through you and your seed. And so Abraham jumped up from his place there in Herod, and he, and he moved his tent into the land of Palestine, and he waited. And as the years went by, and as he heard that clicking and ticking of the body clock of his body, at age 86, after multiple divine revelations about how God was going to provide him, not just with a son, but a whole seed, a whole, a whole family, a vast family, Abraham and his wife Sarah came up with a sensible plan from a human perspective. She said, just take my slave, the bondwoman, Hagar, and have a son. And you remember the outcome of that. It was, it was a horrible story. It ended badly for Ishmael. It ended badly for Hagar. It ended badly for the whole house of Abraham. 
But Abraham was so weak in his faith that when God came to him in Genesis 17, after he instituted the sacrament of circumcision to signify and seal the covenant of grace, he said to him, you are going to yet have a seed. And Abraham turned to God and said, can't Ishmael live before you? He was so caught up in his human plans and human means that he could hardly trust God. And then you'll remember, according to the stories we saw it yet last week again, God comes to him as he's kicked back in his tent on the Oaks of Mamre with the three visitors who were angels, and one of them was the Lord. And he said, this time next year, you will have a son. At 86, he had Ishmael. And at 99, he had Isaac. But as you can see, the story of Isaac is very different. It's not a human plan, a human means. The story of the birth of Isaac is a divine plan and divine means. So it's that story with all of that needlework within it that you take up and you look at because that's precisely what the Apostle Paul wants you to think about. As he brings this discussion about justification by faith alone to its conclusion and following exhortations, he wants you to think and reflect upon that story, that contrasting story with these different threads, uh, uh, Ishmael, human plans and human needs, and Isaac, divine plans and divine needs. Because if you look at the text in front of you, you look back past or before verse 1 of chapter 5, you see the story unfolded. You know the apostle is, is telling the story for a theological purpose. It applies to the Galatians because he says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you listen to the law? You see, the story is being told to address a theological problem in the churches of Galatia, designed to address the false gospel of the Judaizers and the demand that in order to be saved, you need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. They had a simple message. It wasn't law. It wasn't gospel. It was gospel. Faith plus works equals salvation. The apostle says, I want you to look at this story with all of its theological depth and richness, and I want you to see two things. Ishmael is of the bondwoman, is of a slave, is of the flesh, symbolizes works, and Isaac is of the free through promise and symbolizes grace, and their mothers also represent a theological story and theological principles. Hagar is a slave, she produces slave, and she is Jerusalem, which now is Sarah, she's free. She produces free children. And she is Jerusalem, which is above. Theological point. As the apostle hammers home justification by faith alone with its implications, he takes up that story. And the end of it is what's key and leads into what we're going to examine today, which is the implication. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. And he leaves this powerful exhortation before them, brethren. We're not children of the bondwoman. The story is told from a theological perspective to drive home a doctrinal point. The gospel is not the gospel. It's faith and nothing else equals justification. And the implication of all that is found in that last word, free, at the end of verse 31. Because if you were look at this in the original, you'd notice something very interesting. That the last word in verse 31 is free, and the first word in verse 1 of chapter 5 is free. Liberty. The point in telling the story is the apostle brings his discussion to this grand finale with this great punctuation point. And he says, here is what we are concerned about. Freedom versus slavery. Bondage versus liberty. Christ versus self. So he reaches for the story to illustrate his point, and he brings forth this great term, liberty, and he says, here are the implications of this grand doctrine of justification by faith alone. This 
doctrine and this gospel alone is what makes a person free. And he says, because of that, you come under a solemn duty. See that so powerfully stated there. Keep standing. I love the way the King James Version reads at this point. It begins really with that verb. It says, stand fast. And the freedom wherewith Christ has set you free. So this text is about liberty and its solemn duty. We're going to break it down into two parts. Assertion and command. We're going to spend the bulk of our time on the assertion part of it. Because really, it's the richness of the story. And the command is really the implication of it, which is to every believer. Will really lead to lay hold of this aspect of the story, the assertion part. And the assertion part begins with the action, the action of Christ. There's an action, there's a condition. We think, first of all, the action of Christ. And I want us to know simply, and I think it's maybe a picky point, but it's an important one. Christ is the actor in verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. And the thing that I think about when I think of Christ being the actor reminds me this morning about the gospel, because what it tells me is that Jesus Christ is the one who's doing all the work. Jesus Christ did the finished part of that work. He's, he's the one that obeyed the law. He's the one that kept the commandments. He's the one that was strung up on a cross between thieves. He was the one who shed his blood. That's the finished part. He did that, but he also did the other part, which is the application. He's the actor here. He is the one doing the setting free. When you think about that, you need to bring into it the full range of thoughts would emerge when we think about Christ being the actor. And it's a personal act. Jesus Christ is a person. It's a sovereign action because it flows from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an intentional action. Jesus Christ set us free for a purpose that we would be free. And that it wouldn't be repealed. And that's what's so offensive in this false gospel. Because it's, um, it's a work which counters Christ. It goes against Christ as the actor. And it puts man in that primary position. And what he gives is freedom. It's very emphatic in the original. Because literally this reads Christ, us, set us free. To put the direct uh, object in front of the bird like that. In, in Paul's style would tell us that. He is focusing upon something. Christ made us the objects of his action. He made us those who were the receivers of this action. And so the very way that the apostle skillfully sets this forth is designed to reinforce for us and those who are hearing that this is a work of grace from beginning to end. Us, he has given. Us, we have received. All by a sovereign, personal, and intentional act of Jesus Christ. The other thing I throw in here is that it's real. It's real. I, I uh, just kept meditating upon that idea from uh, John 8.36, where Jesus himself said that to the Pharisees. If the Son sets you free... You indeed are free. You see, the accent there is on that adverbial particle, indeed free. It's not an illusion. It's not a dream. It's not a mirage. It's factual. It's real. And because that freedom is what you have received, it's absolutely irreversible. That's what makes it so offensive. These Judaizing false gospel preachers would be subjecting the conscience of the believer with a whole set of commands which undermine gospel grace and liberty. Because in effect, it's saying they are aiming to undo the work of Christ. So the apostle speaks now about the great implication of this act of Christ. He uses this single term, freedom. Freedom. And as you start thinking about this word freedom, you begin to realize that it's in a massive concept. If you were to look it up in the Westminster Confession in chapter 20, it takes, oh, I think, six paragraphs to explain. we got about 35 minutes. So let's take a moment here to work through the implications of what this freedom is, and then we'll get to what we are to do in response to it. But 
I want us to think about some of the elements that are involved. We can't unfold every single element of this Christian liberty or this Christian freedom. But I think we must grab the main lines and main elements. And the first main element of this Christian freedom is that we are free from the curse of the law. The very first thing that we want to lay hold of and rejoice in this morning is that Christian liberty means we are free from the curse of the law. You can see that from yourselves. It takes a few steps to get there. But the beginning point of that is to turn over to Galatians 4.4. Where here the Apostle Paul says that when the fullness of time came forth, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. And so here, the apostle is telling us, uh, by way of connecting redeem with under the law, he's telling us the first step we need to take in this pathway towards Christian liberty. He connects redemption and law. He said Christ came to redeem us from the law. The word redeem is rich. It means a cash payment. It means Christ paid cold cash for our redemption, it comes from the slave market in antiquity. It was the way a person who was a slave was made free. Cash. And I love the fact that the gospel writers snagged that up as a metaphor for what happens in our redemption. Because it paints the picture of the condition of the sinner. A slave. And the only way out is somebody that's paid the price. The apostle said that redemption... Is about Jesus Christ paying cash for those who are under the law. But there's something else. If, if you peel back another layer, you go back to Galatians 3.13. And here you can see the Apostle Paul connects redemption from the curse of the law. Now we're narrowing, we're refining what the Apostle is getting at. You can see it for yourself. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us. For his written cursed is everyone that hangs. We need to think a moment of why that is such good news. Curse of the law. If you look back at verse 10, you can see what that curse of the law is. The apostle says, all of you Judaizers and all of you people who are under the sound of their voice and their teaching about their gospel. I want you to hear what it means to be under the law. And he says in verse 10, For as many as are of the works of the law are under curse. And then what does he do? He quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Genesis 27-26. says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. I know that you see that it's an enthymeme, right? Paul does not spell out to you why this is bad news. He assumes you get the point. The presumption is the reason why this is bad news, and the reason why every single person who is under the law is also under the curse of the law, is because there isn't a single person who comes into this world by way of being connected through an umbilical cord to Adam that can keep the law. Everyone who is born is born in sin and corruption and therefore cannot keep the law. That means every single person is under the law's curse. That brings us back into verse 13, then, where we see the apostle connect redemption, not just to law, but the curse of the law. He says, Christ redeemed us from that curse by becoming a curse for us. That's the language of substitution. Jesus Christ stood in our place and received the outpouring of the curse upon himself. And just to assure us that Jesus' death really was a death that was bound up with him receiving the curse, he does what he just did in verse 10. He quotes from the Bible again. And this time he quotes from Deuteronomy 21-23, which says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. You see, the apostle sees us on the very manner of Christ's death as the assurance to you this morning, the believer, why you can be persuaded and sure that Jesus Christ's redemption 
redeemed you from the curse of the law because the very manner of his death hanging on a tree indicates that the curse fell upon him. So Paul has said that we have been redeemed from the law. He gets more specific in Galatians 3.13 by saying we have been redeemed from the curse of the law. And he ties all this back in now to liberty. Remember, our grand point is to unfold what does it mean that Christ has set us free? What is this liberty? And we said, first of all, this liberty is that we've been freed from the curse of of the law. And I want you to see now, as you come back into Galatians 4 7, the apostle ties these ideas together. And we know he does that because of the very first word in verse 7. What is it? Therefore. Therefore. When you stop and ask what the therefore is, therefore, it's quite evident that it's reaching right back in to this exposition of what redemption is all about. Christ redeeming us from the curse of the law, and now he brings it to this powerful point of conclusion, as he says, therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. Now, I'll grant you the word free isn't there, but the contrast is the same. What is the opposite of being a slave? But free. Liberty. And so the whole point that we're angling for here, that the apostle has, has developed with tremendous depth and richness and insight from the whole of the word of God is simply this, that redemption frees us from the curse of the law, and it leads us into freedom. So freedom must be this morning, people of God, that I am free from the law's curse. I had a, a great time this last week rereading uh, good chunks of Martin Luther's commentary in the book of Galatians, which if you don't have, it's online for free, get it. And then read it, and read it some more. It's a, it's a, it's a very powerful commentary because it's so full of gospel richness. And so I love so many of the statements here, but one of them that gripped me when I was reading it, Luther says this, Our conscience is free and quiet. Because it no longer has to fear the wrath of God. The implication of Christian liberty this morning, people of God, that we are free from the curse of the law means that you don't have to fear the wrath of God. We've already referenced this this morning already, but Colossians 2.14 tells us something of the story of the terror of being under the law and thus being those who are under its curse. Because there the apostle, as he's preaching the gospel, says that the law was a certificate of debt. In other words, the law kept record of all of our transgressions. The law was like a court stenographer writing down with painstaking accuracy all of our transgressions. And so I have this massive record of debt for each and every person who's ever drawn breath. And Paul said that Jesus went to his cross. He took that record and he nailed it. He nailed it to the cross. It says, to know the morning people of God, Christian liberty, is to know you are free from the curse of the law and it is to know that in the depth of your soul. It is to know it in your conscience. It is to be able to say to yourself, every time you come under the conviction of sin, and the terrors of God's wrath, and the fear of his holiness. The record is clear. The debt's been canceled. The cash payment has been made. We are free from the curse of of the law, the sin and its debt has been canceled. The blood of Christ covers us from the sight of God. Freedom means that you are entitled to a clear conscience. Freedom means that the next time you sit there and you sense the riddling of guilt upon your soul, that you don't just have to sit there and quake and fear and shake and tremble. 
wonder whether God's ever going to accept somebody as unholy as you and as broken as you and as sinful as you. You take that and you go and you stand at the foot of the cross and you persuade yourself, you assure yourself it's been canceled. That's what Paul said. That's the glorious freedom he speaks of as the liberty the Judaizers were stealing. Christian liberty means freedom from the curse of the law. Second of all, Christian freedom means you are free from the law's demands for justification. Turn with me back to Galatians 1. Because here the apostle really sets the tone for the entire book. Usually Paul likes to say a lot of nice things about the church. We saw that as we examined so many of Paul's prayers recently, right? Oh, he just loves to talk about the church. He loves to talk about how people are inviting each other over for potlucks and fellowship and doing nice things and praying for each other. I want you to know that when he writes the Galatians, he didn't say that. He says, yeah, grace to you. Okay, I got a problem. I'm amazed you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ to a different gospel. He says it's really not another. And he says it's my curse. See, he already sets the tone for the problem that he's encountering in the Galatian churches as he writes. The very way he writes, the abruptness of it, the urgency. But the very fact that he puts on the spotlight what the problem is. He's just frank and candid and right out in the open with it. You are being taken away from Christ to a gospel which is no gospel at all. But he doesn't really start to unpack that too much until you get to chapter 3, verse 1, when he says, you foolish Galatians. I think that is some of the most blunt pastoral talk in all the Bible. You stupid Galatians. Well, what else could you say about it? To trade Christ for, for this pitiful Judaizing gospel, I don't know what else you could say. Who's bewitched you? Who's cast a spell on you? Christ was set before your eyes. He says, here's what I want to know. Here's where you begin to feel the apostles start to attack the problem. Remember our second point here is that Christian liberty is free from the law's demands for justification. And so he puts them a question. Let me ask you this. Tell me, how did you receive the Spirit? And then now you have a series of contrasts unfold. By the works of the law or by hearing of faith? Verse 2. Did you begin by the Spirit? Are you perfected by the flesh? Verse 3. By the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Verse 5. The department of the redundancy department. See, he's repeating himself. He's setting out what's at stake in these sharp contrasts. Was it by law or was it by faith? He doesn't say there's anything in between. Notice that. It's either or. It's faith alone or it's nothing. That's why he's already summarized it at the end of him speaking about this very unsavory episode between uh, himself and Peter when they went at face-to-face in the Christian assembly. And he summarized the whole gospel of justification by faith alone in a nutshell like no other place, I think, in the New Testament. Nevertheless, knowing a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no one should be justified. Three times, he says. It's a backbone running through verse 16. The law can't cut it. Why is he doing this? He's making it emphatically clear as he's speaking to this Galatian church with this other gospel, which is really no gospel at all. He's hammering these contrasts, faith and works. Why? Well, the backdrop of it all, you can read about for yourself. We've covered it not long ago as we preached through the book of Acts. But Acts 15 makes it very clear what the problem was. The Judaizing, Pharisaical party said this. It's necessary to be circumcised and to observe the law of Moses. It is necessary. That is such a word full of um, emphasis and matter-of-factness and strength it's dogmatic. It's not that it would be nice, or it would be a good supplement 
or if you really want to gain some brownie points with God, it isn't that way. It's very emphatic, and it's very clear and dogmatic. It's necessary to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses to be saved. That's Judaizing salvation. Faith plus works equals grace. No. That's the point. That is what he is attacking. And that's why if you turn back into Galatians 5, in the verses we'll barely have time to even touch on. We'll, we'll, we'll roller skate over them this morning. We just don't have time. But, but the, the thing the Apostle Paul is saying here, when he's talking about, if you receive circumcision, Christ won't benefit. I tell you that you're under obligation to give us. This is the thing he's talking about. This Judaizing, pharisaical gospel. It's necessary to be circumcised to keep the law of Moses. The apostle, as he proclaims the gospel of justification by faith alone, says, no, cast out the bondwoman. It's faith, and it's faith alone. Only that equals freedom. To be justified this morning, people of God, means that you are free from the works of the law for your salvation. There's no work or set of works which you need to perform. There's no single work yet undone that you need to do. There's no set of works which you need to continuously do to keep yourself in God's good graces. No, this is it. You are free from the works of the law for your salvation. That's the message the Apostle Paul proclaims. That's what liberty is. That's the freedom which Christ gives. That our standing before God is 100% earned by Jesus Christ. And I think as much as we say yes and amen to that, we read it in the Westminster Confession, so it's no, it's true. We have to hear it over and over and over and over again. Because something is wrong. This gospel is so constantly under attack that believers who know better often walk around burdened. It's sad to see believers walk around with a sense of guilt, feeling like they need to do more, like they haven't lived well enough, a cloud constantly hanging over their shoulder, preaching a list of demands. Christian freedom says no. It says slow down, just listen. Let Christ and gospel grace and truth just be spoken into your ears. Jesus finished the work. He did it all. You're free from the law's curse because of his death. And you stand before God in his righteousness because of his perfect obedience to the law. I love to tell you this when I work you through catechism for membership. And I always tell this to everybody. I'm confident of it. I forget a lot of stuff now. I'm older. But I'm confident I always say this. Righteousness is alien. It's outside of me. It's imputed to my account. And I say the joy of that for the believer is not just to know how to manipulate some catechism terminology. The joy of that for the believer to cling to this alien righteousness of Jesus Christ is because the believer's experience is this. I look into myself and I find everything that's wrong. What freedom means, what Christian liberty means, is I look outside of myself. Look out to Jesus Christ. What I see there is a record of perfection. That's Christ's righteousness. That's what's given to me. That's how I stand before God. Christian liberty means I am free from the law's demands for justification. I'd love to stop there and say, that's good. As long as we walk away with that this morning, as long as we walk away persuaded, I'm free from the law's curse. I'm free from the law's demand for my salvation would be a good change. We have to say a couple other things because often that wonderful theology, which seems very self-evident to us, it seems like it rounds true, rings true to our Protestant ears. Our Presbyterian ears say, yes, amen. How does it get undermined? 
Mind you, the, the Judaizers did not walk into the Galatian church and say, Jesus Christ did not pay at all. No one's foolish enough to say that. So how did Judaizing false gospel penetrate and infiltrate the church? That brings us to our third point. Our third point is that Christian liberty is freedom from the ceremonies of the law. Christian freedom is freedom from the ceremonies of the law. That's what was in view here. Um, again, if you would go back to Acts 15.1, it's stated as boldly as this. Unless you are circumcised according to Moses, you cannot be saved. That's pretty bold. That's pretty blunt. That's pretty simple. I can even understand that. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It's clear. But what that represented was another set of commandments, too, because it's quite obvious to us that uh, circumcision doesn't come from Moses. It comes from God's covenant with Abraham. So most likely what's in view there is we're thinking about the duties and obligations that were imposed upon the Gentile who wanted to live in the land but didn't want to be a Jew. Well, there were certain things that they had to do. So here's the Pharisees who are coming to Christ, clinging to their types and shadows in Judaism, and they're saying, Gentiles, if you really want to be in the Christian club, you must submit to these ordinances. You can look it up yourself in Galatians 4. The Apostle Paul said that now that you've come to know God, this is verse 8, chapter 4, or rather to be known by God, how is it you turn back to the weak and worthless elemental things? The King James here has beggarly. That's a great translation. To which you desire to be enslaved all over again. What's the enslavement? What's the beggarly? You observe days, months, seasons, and years. It's the same uh, expounding that you would find if you turn to Colossians 2.16, where Paul places a whole series of things in the category of shadow, food, drink, festival, new moon, Sabbath day. He says it's shadow. You know, the thing that just troubles us so much, people of God, is here it is, right under the very eyes of the apostles who were teaching something different. It's getting traction. After all, these Gentiles desperately wanted to be received as brethren. They wanted to be regarded as fellow heirs of the kingdom. To turn away from paganism meant that they turned away from everything. They lost their family. They lost their friends. They lost their standing in their communities. They probably lost their job if they were part of the trade guilds at the time. They lost everything. Do you understand why this capitulating to the ceremonies could catch hold of them? Because this gave them an identity. said if it means becoming Jewish, I, I, I guess so. I guess so. But Paul is so doggedly clear. If you receive it, Christ is of no benefit. Because that law is finished. You see, it would be wonderful if we had stopped at the first two points. Free from the curse of the law. Free from the law as a means of justification. But the way this false gospel comes into the church, first of all, is to look at what God once said to do, and for somebody to say, you know what, if God said it then, maybe we should do it now. It feels plausible, doesn't it? Christian liberty means we are free from the ceremonies of the law, the yoke of that law. It means a final thing, and I'm going to take this from the Westminster Standards, okay? It means we're free from all man-made man -made laws for faith and worship. Paragraph 2, chapter 20. God alone 
is the Lord of the conscience. We should stop right there. That's good enough for me. God alone is the Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are contrary to the word or beside it in matters of faith and worship. So that to believe such doctrines or obey such doctrines out of conscience is to betray This is really where people get caught up, huh? This is really where people begin to surrender their faith. This is where Christian liberty comes under attack. See here, and the confession was so wise to frame it like this. God is Lord of the conscience, and he exercises that worship through his word, not man's. And the way it says it is so skillful because it says anything contrary, we say, duh, that's true. The Protestants, the Presbyterians. But when it says the next thing, I think this is what's key. Beside it. <laughs> think about that. Beside it. We're not going to get duped into the contrary to the law, no. Beside it. There could be some really good arguments for that, right? Anything beside it, matters of worship or faith that says, this is where the camel's nose of the tent starts coming in, right? Beside it. What the confession is saying rightly is if the ceremonial law, which was once given by God for the church under age, is abrogated, certainly then, no human commandment can come alongside the word. You're free in your conscience. We are not permitted to allow anything to supplement the word of God and then uh, bind our allegiance to it. So our liberty is something that we must stand for. We will not tolerate anything to come in alongside the word in matters of doctrine or worship because our liberty in Christ doesn't permit it. So what's Christian liberty in a nutshell? Well, we can say it's at least these four things. It's free from the curse of the law, free from the demands of law for justification, free from the ceremonies of the law, and free from man's laws when it comes to faith and worship. There's more, but we'll stop with that because what we need to do now is to listen here to what the Apostle Paul says to do. In view of all that, the Apostle said, I want you to know I've got an urgent message for you this morning. In view of this grand and glorious and gracious and free liberty of Jesus Christ, which is sovereignly, personally, and intentionally given, there's something for us to do. And then stay up. I want you to notice the command here. The apostle gives us sort of two, but it's just really one. He says, keep standing firm and don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. These are really the same coin, just two different sides. And the yoke of slavery there, he's clearly thinking of the Mosaic ordinances that are ceremonial in nature because yoke was a popular Jewish term of the day to talk about this duty and obligation of obedience. He said, I want you to never become enslaved to that again. But the, the melody line, the main note here is this very powerful verb. Stand. Stand for it. Luther, again, talking about this. And again, I urge you to at least grab it on this section of Galatians 5. And read it for yourself this afternoon as a Lord's Day afternoon treat to yourself. Read it because it's so pithy and wise and insightful. But he says, this standing isn't lying down. It's not to take a seat, nor is it to slumber at night. He's trying to galvanize the people of God to, to action. To know this liberty is to know its value and its joy. And it's to see because of its worth, it's something to fight for. Calvin says, certainly such an invaluable blessing in defense of which it is our duty to fight even to the death. Luther again says, be steadfast, don't be careless. Why? He says, because Satan hates the light 
Sometimes I think it would be a great thing to live in the days of the apostles. Why not? If you ever want to know something about Jesus, you could just walk up to him and say, what about them? I've always thought, what a privilege it must have been for those believers to, to have been able to, to look at the apostles who ate with Christ and talked to Christ and were a friend to Christ. But one thing I'm increasingly struck by, it was no advantage to the church in terms of its defense. Because right under the nose of the apostles, wherever they went, false gospel and false doctrine came right alongside them. Hence the command to stay. The reason is because what Luther said is true. Satan hates the gospel. I'm not so interested this morning in cataloging all the garbage that passes as gospel and all the fights and disputes and debates that are within our earshot this morning in the broader Christian world. I see the standing is a little bit more personal than that to us this morning. It's as close as everyone's bleeding heart within them. The stand is sometimes against yourself. Some believers wrestle with being a Pharisee and being ensnared by Christian legalism. Some believers wrestle with a lack of insurance and they never have joy and gospel liberty. Some believers wrestle mightily with this idea. They've just not done enough. They've not lived well enough to be saved or to stay saved. Others get ensnared by human commandments that they can't find written down anywhere, but everybody knows they have to follow the struggle is as near to every single one of us as our own heart within us. So what the apostle says to the Galatians, he says to you this morning, stand firm in your liberty. Struggle to uphold it, to cling to it, to know the joy of it, to set a fortress about it. For the sole and single reason, it's precious and Satan hates it. To duty. The reasons are clear. We don't spend any time on them, but I just want to tick them off in a series here because I want you to show you how blood earnest and serious Paul was as he gave this command. He followed it up with a series of reasons, and it's just staggering to think that he would have to say it like this, but he did. He said in verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, that's him appealing to his apostolic authority, saying, If you receive circumcision, Christ of no benefit to you. Christ is of no benefit to you. If you really dwell on Luther's comment here, it will reduce you to tears. Because he says it means that you lose all the benefits of Christ's suffering and death. You lose it all. Submitting to circumcision, which is put for any system which demands of you to do something to add to faith. You're surrendering Christ. The other thing he says in verse 3, to be even more specific and plain, he says to every person who submits to circumcision, again, metaphorically put for any system that says add to Jesus X, Y, and Z, he says, I want you to know you are under obligation to keep the whole law. Verse 3. We already saw what that meant back in chapter 3. Cursed is everyone who continues not in all the things written in the book of the law to do them. The last one is perhaps the most graphic. It's in verse 4. You've been severed from Christ. You are seeking to be justified by the law you have followed from grace. It's as moving as it is graphic. The reasons that Paul stacks up here from a mountain, we have to stand firm because nothing less is on the line than this. Christ, freedom, grace, salvation. To give that up is to forfeit all of that. For what? 
So what do we do with our Christian freedom? We know we have to stand in it. But I want us to walk away thinking of this, to stick this right in our thinking. We must really dwell on it and learn to, to cherish it. And to help us focus on just what it is to cherish this freedom and to really think about it, to know what it is, and to just give God the, the glory and thanks for it. I quote again from Luther, who I said is so ever quotable in this particular section. He says, who can adequately express the benefit that comes to a person when he has hard assurance God will never more be angry with him, but will forever be merciful for the sake of Christ. Let me read that again. Who can adequately express the benefit that comes from knowing the hard assurance that God will never be angry with them and will be forever merciful because of Christ. He says, this indeed is marvelous liberty to have the sovereign God as our friend and our Father who will defend us and maintain us and save us. This is liberty. The Father isn't angry. The Father is forever mercy. Merciful, the Father who is sovereign is our God and our friend and Father, and he sustains us. That's marvelous. So may the Lord deliver us from being even momentarily fascinated with any and every other counterfeit and substitute gospel. May he strengthen us to do exactly what the Apostle Paul commands in view of the glory of Christian freedom. Stand Father, we thank you, Almighty, for the glory of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time we compare it to anything else, we see it shine with all of its glory and luster, and we see how foolish and pitiful and weak and corrupt every single thing else is, even though it's dressed up in all the language of piety and holiness, it's garbage. Help us, Lord, this morning to save or rejoice in this grand and glorious freedom, this liberty. With Christ has set us free. As we grasp hold of its value, of its benefit, Lord, help us at the same time to be mindful of its calling. That you strengthen us unto it. Father, help us to stand, to stand, and not yet again be entangled into any other yoke of bondage, because we have been set free precious ransom price of Christ's blood. Receive our thanks through him. Amen.